0: If you're going to go watch the Rams in uh, the playoffs starting next week, uh, here's what you're going to have to know about the COVID policy at SoFi Stadium here. Uh, number one, you're, you're going to have to, uh, one option, just show proof of vaccination. Hey, I've been Uh, vaccinated a hundred times and here's all of them on my card or my 10 cards that I have now in my wallet. So look, I've been vaccinated. Let me in. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to have to have a negative PCR test within 48 hours uh, to show proof that you are not COVID positive. Um, if you don't have that and you say, well, I prefer the antigen test, uh, then you have to have that done within 24 hours. And again, it it needs to be negative or you're not going to get in. Uh, then you have to have a photo ID to prove that the name on the test is who you are. And so you're going to have to have your ID there, uh, to show. And then beyond that, you're of course going to have to wear the ever-present mask inside the the stadium. So that's if you want to go to, to, to SoFi to watch the Rams in the playoffs uh, next week. Well, what if you want to go to Israel? I know we're kind of up in the game a little bit. So far, Israel, we're, we're, we're crossing an ocean and uh, a little bit longer of a commute there to get up, out to Israel. But let's talk about what you need to do uh, to get to Israel. Familiar with this because we were going to go as a church and then uh, started to think through all the different things and scenarios that we would have to navigate through. And we have since postponed our, our church trip. But uh, I got an email from our tour guide. Here's what it involves. Uh, you have to file an entry permit 36 hours before you leave the country. You have to let them know, hey, I'm coming 36 hours before you leave. Then you need to have a a PCR test, just like SoFi Stadium. Uh, This is to be done no more than 72 hours prior to departure. So you need to have a negative PCR test before they will let you on the plane to go to Israel uh, within 72 hours of getting on the plane. Uh, You have to then, when you arrive in Israel, complete another PCR test that also needs to be negative to make sure that between the time that you got on the plane and the time that you get off the plane, that you're not all of a sudden COVID positive. So there's another test that you have to take. And then beyond all this, you need at least two vaccines, okay? You need your vaccine and your booster, and those have to be administered within six months of your trip to Israel. And if you're outside that six-month window, well, you've got to go get stabbed again. You've got to go get a third vaccine in order for Israel to say, hey, yeah, you can come. We think that you're safe, and you can come into our country. Uh, That's Israel in COVID, okay? Well, if you think that's a lot, uh, here's COVID in the Saddleback Valley Unified School District. Um, (laughs) This is what uh, we literally got this in a, a bullet point email from my kid's school district this past week. And, uh, and here's how it breaks down. Uh, COVID positive staff and students can return to school after five days. Okay, well, that's good news. If you have COVID, you don't have to leave forever. Uh, you have to wait five days, then you can come back to school because the CDC has updated it recently to five days. Uh, but it, it goes on here. It says if you've had close contact in your staff and you're vaccinated and boosted or vaccinated, but not yet booster eligible, w- well, then you can stay here. You can stay in school if you've had close contact and you're a staff member who has been vaccinated and boosted or you're vaccinated but not yet booster eligible. Hey, we'll let you hang out and stay. Third though, if you are a student who has close contact and you are vaccinated and boosted or vaccinated but not yet booster eligible, as may be the case, uh, then you can also stay in school as long as you test negative for COVID on day five from your exposure. If you test positive, well then the world's over and, uh, and you're done. You're just gonna fail, everything. Uh, close contact staff. How about close contact staff who are not vaccinated? Uh-oh. Uh, you must remain at home for at least five days. So if you're around somebody who's COVID positive and you are a staff member in the Saddleback Valley Unified School District uh, and you're not vaccinated, then you have to stay at home for five days and then you have to produce a negative test on day five before you can come back to work. So that's COVID positive or staff with close contact who are not vaccinated. Close contact staff who are vaccinated and unboosted, but there is a booster available for you. You're just a rebel. You don't want the second one for you. If you're asymptomatic, you can remain at school, but you have to test negative between days three and five of your exposure window there. And then finally, close contact students who are not vaccinated or unboosted, but booster eligible, those are rebels, they can stay at school as well, if they test negative on day five and are asymptomatic and wear a mask. These students are not eligible though to participate in extracurricular activities. Don't show up to baseball practice because you're not allowed to be there even though it's outside. I kid you not, that, I, I plagiarized the Saddleback Valley Unified School District email that they sent me. That's what we got in the email for our kids uh, going to school. What's the point of all of these rules and regulations? And without opening up pandora's box i'm going to choose to give them the benefit of the doubt yep benefit of the doubt that's the word and i'm going to i'm going to believe because first corinthians 13 man love believes all things doesn't it i'm going to demonstrate a love for my fellow humanity at the saddleback valley unified school district and believe that they have all of these rules and regulations in place because they're trying to communicate something to us and what they're trying to communicate to us is that they believe that this virus is a threat And so you look at all these rules and regulations and you go, man, this is a lot to try to navigate. This is a lot to try to obey. This is a lot to try to keep in mind as far as what we're supposed to do. And at the end of the day, I'm choosing to believe, or at least proposing, if we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, that they're doing all of these things so that we will be safe, so that we understand this is dangerous and we abide by these precautions in order to preserve our lives. The image up on the screen behind me is a graphic that depicts the the layout of the the temple in Israel. Uh, Solomon's temple, and then you had Herod's temple. Uh, Herod's temple was a little bit different, but the layout was was generally the same. And what I want you to notice here is the temple, even in its layout, had rules and regulations and restrictions and policies, uh, much like some of this COVID craziness that we're going through. The difference is uh, these rules and regulations came from God. They were delivered, handed down by God as to how Israel was to approach and engage the temple. But I want you to think about this and look at this because I want you to understand what we're talking about here. Because when we talk about animal sacrifices, when we talk about going to the temple to worship, you and I are at a disadvantage because we don't live in that culture and around that time anymore. And you can't go to Israel and see this still taking place because the temple's not there. The dome of the rock is there, right? And so the we can't even watch this taking place. And so we might have it in our mind some twisted, misconstrued information or picture of what it meant for the Israelites to go, even during the time of Jesus, to the temple to worship and bring their sacrifices. So you'll see up there on the screen that there's numbers that are up on there and, and letters. Well, ladies, not to disappoint you or discourage you, but the, you see the E over on the right-hand side of the screen there? That's called the court of the women. So ladies, if you were an Israelite woman in the first century, living during the time of Jesus, when you went to the temple, that is as far as you were allowed to go by law. You had to to remain in the court of the the women there in the outer section there. Well, men, if you'll look at the D, we we got to go a little bit closer if you were an Israelite man, that is. If you're a Gentile, you're even outside of all of this. But if you're an Israelite man, you can go to where the, the D is there. That's the court of the Israelite or the court of Israel. And so as you would have your goat or your bull or your pigeons or whatever you had to offer to sacrifice that day when you went to the temple, you as the family representative, as the family head, would go to where it has the D on the screen behind me there. Well, you'll notice there's that line right next to the D there. That's a a gate. That's a wall, a half wall there that would come up and separate the court of Israel from the court of the priests. And that's what's in letter C there. That's where the the Jewish priests would take the animal from the worshipper. Over that barricade, over that, that separating, dividing wall there, they would take the sacrifice and then you'll see there the number one in that big square towards the bottom, that was the altar there. And they would, after bleeding the animal out in, in the, the blood lavers, which is number four there, they would take the animal up onto the altar for the, the, the burnt offering or whatever it may be that you were there to, to present. So when you came to worship, you, were, you weren't actually putting anything on the altar, in fact, you weren't even involved in the process beyond bringing the animal to the priest. You needed the priest to come and take the sacrifice from you and offer it on your behalf. You were kept on the, the outside. Well, the, the priests were allowed in the court of the priest there and even up into number six, which was just the, the porch and then letter B there, which is the, the holy place, okay, not the holy of holies, but the holy place that the priests, the Levites, could operate in that realm. But you'll notice then there's A right next to the B in a smaller area, a smaller section that was cut off. And that place, that place was what? That was the holy of holies. And that was the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. That was the place where the the cherubim were hovering above the 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 sculpted cherubim above the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat was there with a blood offering on the day of atonement was offered and where god's glory was manifested in in the the presence of the high priest who is only allowed to venture in there one day a year on the day of atonement okay why all of this well because it, it it has a lot to do with what we're talking about in hebrews This week and the next two weeks, we're really zooming in on the sacrifice of Jesus for us and how this whole series has been about how Jesus is better. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about how the sacrifice of Jesus is better. And understanding the temple regulations helps us to understand and appreciate what we have when we think about what we have in Christ Because this separation, all of this, just like the the COVID rules and regulations are meant to communicate a message to us, right? This was all meant to communicate a message to Israel, and that is that God is holy and they are not, and that their sin has caused a a problem, that their sin has created separation between them and God, Uh, that you and I wouldn't be able to get past that best uh, letter D, we can't get to the altar where the offering is presented. We certainly can't go in the holy place and we definitely can't go in the holy of holies. We can't appear before the presence of God. And so the, the, the whole layout of the temple even was God communicating a message to his people. Hey, there's a, a problem. I am holy. I am other. I am separate. I am distinct from you and your sin has created this barrier. Oh, and by the way, Your sin needs to be atoned for. It needs to have the the wrath, the penalty paid for. And the way that that takes place is through the shedding of blood, which is why their sacrificial system was instituted. Why blood of of bulls and goats and lambs filled the the lavers there. And why the the aroma of meat being burnt on the, the, the altar there was a constant thing in the temple. Why? Because the Israelites were constantly sinning and constantly in need of an atoning sacrifice. See, even the way that the temple was mapped out and the temple was designed by God was not just random. It was designed this way to communicate a message that every time Israel would come to the temple, they'd be reminded of their sin and their need for forgiveness, their need for atonement. Every single time in the temple was this reminder that this was a continual need that they had. They kept having to come back and offer their sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. Part of the good news of the gospel, y'all, what we're gonna read about tonight is this, that you and I don't have to go to the temple anymore with our sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. Why, because we're any less sinful than the Israelites? No, No, in fact, I feel like we're living in a culture and a world that's inventing new ways to sin every single day. What's changed is that we've got a better sacrifice in Jesus. So take your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine. I'm gonna read just the first five verses for us. It says this, it says, now even the first covenant, because if you remember back ah, like a month ago, last time we were in Hebrews, we're talking about the covenants, that, that Jesus is the enactor of a better covenant now. But he's saying this. He's saying, look, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. This is the Old Testament covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant of the law. He's saying even the first covenant had regulations, rules, guidelines for worship. And an earthly place of holiness. There was somewhere that you went. You went to the temple and the holy of holies resided there, the place where God's glory would would meet with mankind, would meet with the high priest. It was a physical place that you could look to and point to. There was an earthly place of holiness. Uh, For a tent first, the tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. If you see that, that's up on the, the screen there in the temple. That would have been B in that section there. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Talking about the 10 commandments that Moses had brought down, those two tablets. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where God's, uh, God's glory resided there in the Holy of Holies. Overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in much detail he begins by talking about this earthly place of holiness, and he's signaling a contrast that he's going to be making throughout the entire 14 verses that we're looking at together tonight. And that is the contrast between the the earthly temple and the earthly priesthood and the heavenly temple and the heavenly priesthood that Christ possesses. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 8, which I know it's been a while, so I'll read it. it. It says there of Jesus It says that he is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In the heavenly sanctuary, in the presence of the Father, in the presence of, to borrow from the Old Testament language, Yahweh, you have Jesus there ministering on our behalf. And so in Hebrews 9.1, the earthly place of worship of holiness is meant to to call back Hebrews 8.2. And in the contrast between that place where the Levites served and the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus serves. And he says there's these two sections. We went over them on the screen. You've got the holy place and the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And in the holy place, the priests were allowed to go in. The priests were allowed to go in and and, and minister, and they were allowed to go in and and do their thing there. But then there was the second location, the holy of holies, where you had these pieces of furniture, the the chief one being the Ark of the, the Covenant, which it says contained the jar of manna. the Staff of Aaron that budded and then the, the two tablets of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And then in between the cherubim on top of the ark was the mercy seat where the blood of the sin offering would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. Again, blood bringing forgiveness All of this represented within the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go once a year and repeatedly, year after year after year after year, he would have to go in with this blood, the blood of bulls and goats, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. But then he says there, and some of you are praising God for this, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he's like, this is not necessarily the point of my argument, to talk about all the different pieces and furnishings and rooms of the temple. He's saying, I just want you to understand that there's a contrast here. In fact, he continues that contrast. Pick up again in verse 6. He says, these preparations having thus been made, in other words, these preparations behind me on the screen here, the, the layout, the separation, the holy place, the holy of holies, the, the, all the different courts and everything else, these preparations having thus been made, the, the priests, they go regularly into the first section. Not the holy of holies, but just the holy place. They go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. It was a requirement. He had to have the blood of the sacrifice to take in with him, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So just in verses 6 and 7, some more contrast here. Verse 6, it's the common priest. It's, it's the priests in general who are allowed to go into that first section. But then in verse 7, the high priest goes into the holy of holies, the, the second section. Verse 6, the, the common priest, they go in repeatedly, regularly, it says, to do their ministry there. The high priest rather goes in in verse 7 only once a year. The common priests go in without requirement to do their their work. They would go in, some of their work would have been to to trim the wicks of the oil lamps that would have been burning on the menorahs that were in the the holy place there. They needed to make sure that those were maintained. They were also there to, to burn incense in the holy place in the morning time and in the evening time. And they would have also gone in once a week to replace the bread of the presence. These were some of the things that the priest would do inside the holy place And so they were able to go in there whenever they needed to go in there and do their duties without preconditions. But verse seven, notice the high priest enters into the holy place only once a year and not without what? Not without blood. That was a prerequisite. If the high priest went in without the sacrificial blood, he was a dead man. It demanded the blood. Y'all, again, all of this, the whole layout of the temple, all of the rules and regulations for the priest, who could go where and when could they go there, all of it was, was designed by God to communicate a message, this continual reminder for the Israelites of his holiness and their sinfulness, a constant reminder of the separation that that sin had caused between man and God. The average Israelite could not venture into the the temple just willy-nilly, just walk in. Willy-nilly, there's a word you didn't think you were going to hear tonight. You're welcome. But but he couldn't just walk in the way sometimes we come in and we just walk into church. Mindlessly. Without thinking at all about what we're doing. It's like, well, it's Saturday night, so I'm going to be at church. It's Sunday morning, so I'm going to be at church. What else am I going to do? And meanwhile, you haven't prepared, you haven't thought about what you're doing. Or it's Sunday night, I'm going to go to the bridge, I'm going to walk in. Oh, oh, look at that, the worship band started playing. I'm going to start, oh oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to start singing the words that are up on the screen. Y'all, do you realize that there was never a thought for an Israelite to just show up casually to worship God? And that's part of the point of the temple, being what it was? To remind them of the weight of what they were doing? That they needed a priest to minister on their behalf to represent them before God. And more than that, they needed a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to to atone for all of the the unintentional sins of the the nation. God was communicating something to his people, but y'all, here's the thing. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, because he's still writing about it, even in the church age now, he's trying to tell us that, hey, the temple means something for us too, even as followers of Jesus. It's still a reminder. It still should be a reminder for us of the holiness of God and of our separation from him because of our sin. It should still be a reminder to us, just like it was for Israel, that we need a high priest to go in before in the presence of God to mediate for us, to intercede for us, that we have need of that. The temple should remind us of that. Here's the thing. Unlike the Israelites... We know a high priest who has gone in not once a year, but once for all, period. Not just to atone for the sins of the past year, but for the sins of every year. We know that high priest. The message of the temple was meant to point people towards Jesus towards their need for a greater high priest than a Levitical high priest. A priest of a different order. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. A priest who would bring an offering that was far better than any offering that they could ever imagine. Y'all, we know that priest. And so as the Israelites gathered at the temple and brought their sacrifices, they did so not trusting in the bull or the goat not trusting in the blood of that animal but trusting in their god to forgive them as that sacrifice was an act of faith on their behalf y'all when you come to worship do you do you understand that we come to worship and bring our sacrifice and offerings which look a whole lot different today than they did then but it's for the same purpose. We don't come here trusting in the sacrifices and offerings that we're bringing to God. We come here to to rejoice in and and remember that we trust in Christ's work on our behalf so that we can be right before the Lord. Point number one tonight is this. Trust Christ's work and not yours. Trust Christ's work and not yours. Uh, R.C. Sproul said this, the human dilemma is this. You want to know the problem for mankind? Here it is, Sproul said. God is holy and we are not. That was the human dilemma for the Israelites, and that's the human dilemma for you and me as well. God is holy and we are not. God's holiness, what is it? It's his, we often think about it, his moral perfection. And it is that. He is 100% morally perfect, pure without sin without stain without defect yes that is god's holiness but it's also his transcendence it's his otherness it's his uh, his his complete uniqueness such that he is unlike us in every respect that we could ever imagine not only us but he's unlike anything else in all of creation in that he is holy he is separate he is distinct he is set apart from everything else because he is God. The human dilemma is this, God is holy and we are not. R.C. Sproul continued, he says this, he says, right now it is impossible for us to see God in his pure essence. Before that can ever happen, we must be purified. When Jesus taught the Beatitudes, he promised only a distinct group the vision of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. None of us in this world is pure in heart. It is our impurity that prevents us from seeing God. The problem is not with our eyes that we can't see him. The problem is with our hearts. Only after we are purified and totally sanctified in heaven will we have the capacity to gaze upon him face to face. Thus, Y'all, the separation between us and God is still felt by us today. Even as believers, there's still a mindfulness that God is holy, and we are not in. And until we are freed from this body of sin, we cannot stand in the full presence of the glory of God. We would be consumed like Isaiah, we would be undone, we'd be destroyed. And so there's a a sense in which we are awaiting that full realization of, of what Jesus has done for us. However, here's what separates us from the Israelites of old. We know now a high priest who has gone into that second section, who has gone behind the veil. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20, let me remind you, says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the curtain, the inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, the place that you and I right now can't go. We have a high priest who's there where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone there for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, we can't be in the presence of God, but we have a high priest who is in the presence of God for us, is what he's saying here. We know differently from Israel, a high priest who uh, holds this priesthood permanently, Hebrews 7.24. And because he's in the Holy of Holies permanently and holds the priesthood permanently, Hebrews 7.25 says, guess what? He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And so, yes, we have a a problem, y'all, but our problem is remedied by our high priest that you and I get to know now. And so we are not trusting in what we bring to the table. We are trusting in what he has brought to the table already. And that's so important because some of the Israelites began to miss the point of the temple and the sacrificial system. They began to think that they were fine with God because I brought my bulls and my goats. I brought my lamb. I brought my turtle doves. I went through the, all the rituals. I went through all the regulations. I did everything I was supposed to do, so I'm, I'm good with, with God. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Look at verse 8, back in our text, Hebrews chapter 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. In other words, the author is saying, look, we're kind of in the first section right now, waiting to be with God. In the Holy of Holies. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Now he's talking again about the, the physical temple. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that, notice this, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's the problem. Notice what he just said there. Sometimes we, we miss this. We think that the bulls and the goats in the Old Testament somehow were, had a power within them to forgive the, the Israelites. They didn't. They didn't. It was still always salvation by faith. The sacrifice was simply a reminder and an act of obedience, but it was simply a reminder that, hey, your sin demands lifeblood. And so that's why the the animals were brought, but they couldn't. Yeah, fine. Externally, you're good. You've been atoned for externally, ceremonially. You're clean now because you offer the right sacrifice. But internally, you've got a heart problem that needs more than bulls and goats. Now, that's what he's saying in verse 9. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, but these deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the the, the time of reformation, until the better is is here. Y'all remember our author, if we can think back to the opening, was writing to this group of, of Jewish believers tempted to even go back. So he's reminding them of the temple right now. He's going, you want to go back to the temple of the bulls and the goats and the lambs and everything else? What did that do for you? The the, the one that all that was pointing to, hey, guess what, guys? He's here. Trust in Jesus. Don't trust in that stuff. Don't, Don't go back to that. You don't need that anymore. That can't help you. That can't perfect your conscience. You want to be forgiven? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, not the temple. And look, I get it. You're sitting out there tonight going, okay, Pastor PJ, why all this focus on the temple? Reality check. There's no temple around. We're not, we're not taking the bulls and the goats. We don't live in temple age. We couldn't even if we wanted to because there's no temple. There's the dome of the rock. You said so earlier. So what's the big deal? Well, let me ask you, what rituals are you trusting in instead of trusting in Jesus to maintain your relationship with God? What are those things that are your sacrifices and offerings? What are your bulls and goats that you have in your life today? And yeah, they're different. It looks a whole lot different than it did for a first century Israelite. But don't think for a second that the problem is not the same for us as it was for them. What are those rituals? What are those bulls and goats that you turn to that you think, man, I'm good with God because fill in the blank. And if that's anything other than because of Jesus, then you're trusting in a work. You're trusting in a ritual. You're trusting in a process. You're trusting in your bulls and goats instead of trusting in the one that's fulfilled the, all those things. we will talk more about that in your, your small group time. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. God was pretty strong with his people when they began to trust in their sacrifices And miss the covenant relationship with him. Amos chapter 5 verses 21 through 27 says this, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Think about that. I hate your feasts. The feasts that I commanded you to, to obey, I hate them. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies when you gather together and put on your worship face. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Don't sing to me anymore. The melody of your harps, I'm not going to listen to that. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The answer implied there is obviously what? No. And yet God is saying what? But I was there with you. We had a relationship. Look, I, I'm, these, these offerings, these sacrifices, that's not maintaining our relationship. You've trusted in those and walked away from what I really want, which is I want you to do justice and to love righteousness and to walk humbly with your Lord, right? You've trusted in your works. Isaiah chapter one, same, verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. By the way, that's not a compliment. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings; incense is an abomination to me. New moon and sabbath and the calling of convocations—I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Don't sin to your heart's delight and then show up expecting because you showed up and you're going through the motions that were good. God's saying we're not good. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. Look, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Y'all, it is a serious thing when we begin to trust in our work over the work of Christ. Because we're falling prey to the same thing that the Israelites were falling prey to thinking that we're good with God because we throw him a token daily Bible reading, because we throw him a token prayer every once in a while, because we every once in a while decide I need to listen to a little bit more worship music. One more, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. Are far from me. So y'all, make sure your worship is intentional because its end is your relationship with Jesus. That's what all of this is about. If your worship does not end in a desire to be closer to Jesus, then you're worshiping for the wrong reasons. It's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, right? I know whom I have believed. He could have said what? He could have said what, but he didn't. He said, I know whom I have believed. So make sure you are trusting in Christ's work and not yours. But let's think about the temple for a minute. Because before Christ, an Israelite's whole system of worship revolved around The temple, that was how God designed it. They were there to offer the sacrifices and the godly ones that would go and do as God had commanded them knew that they were offering sacrifices that were a foreshadowing of a greater sacrifice yet to come. Now, they didn't know the cross was coming. They didn't know all of the things that you and I know, but they had an idea in their mind that there was this was not, look, the, the, the bull and the goat doesn't save me. God's gonna save me, right? Abraham did what? He believed God, had faith, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. So that, came to be after Abraham's time when the temple was built, that that expression of our faith in God, of an Israelite's faith in God, came to have its anchor in the temple, right? All right, Hebrews 9:11, back in our text. Says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay, so the Israelites' whole system was built around the temple and around the high priest. Now our author says, look, Christ has come as a high priest of the good things that have come. He's bringing them back to the present now. He's saying, remember the temple? Remember all that? You really want to go back there? That couldn't perfect your conscience. He's saying, remember, now we've got a better high priest, Jesus who is a high priest of the good things that have come. These are all the benefits that we enjoy as Christians, that the Jews could only view through dimly lit eyes as they were expressing their faith, trusting that God was going to forgive them because of uh, them bringing these these sacrifices as an act of faithful obedience to him, right? Now Christ is here, the uh, high priest of the good things that have come that you and I get to enjoy. What are some of these things? How about this? Complete access to the Father through the intercession of Jesus for us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Because we have a high priest who's not able uh, unable to, to sympathize with us, but instead one who's been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence what? Draw near where? To the throne. Who sits on a throne? A king. Which king is he talking about? God. To the throne of mercy and grace to find grace to help in time of need. With boldness? With confidence? remember the diagram back up there a little while ago there's no boldness and confidence you're not getting into the holy of holies but we have a better high priest of the good things that have come one of the good things that has come is now you have access and I have access to the father we can boldly come into his presence another good thing that's come how about the complete confidence that we're going to be saved and delivered from our sins how about that it's a pretty sweet benefit right Hebrews 7:25 he is able to save to the uttermost which means to the absolute end he's able to save those who draw near to him to God rather through him and we also have third complete confidence that our redemption is as he's just said here in verse 12 what kind of a redemption an eternal redemption it's an eternal redemption oh, well, Pastor PJ, what do you think about losing your salvation? Um, if, it's, if you can lose your redemption, it's not an eternal redemption. It's a six-week redemption. It's a six-month redemption. It's a 15-year redemption. Oh, my, <clears throat> then you, you blew it. No, 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 He's a high priest of an eternal redemption. Most of you in this room, I think, save our, uh, our leaders, esteemed leaders wise, wise, gray hair, crown of glory kind of leaders that we have in this room. Most of the rest of you in this room were born around the turn of the century. And uh, none of you had anything to do with that, did you? Nope. Nope, you didn't. And a lot of times we're challenged to think about the privilege of living in the time that we're living in, right? I mean, you, you can take your phone and watch an entire movie or sporting event or YouTube video, you can just, I'm going to watch it, I'm going to do it right now, and you just watch it. That's something that 25 years ago was completely unheard of, to try to explain that to someone, right? I remember growing up watching the Jetsons, right? That was an old cartoon about life in the future. That's why so many of us who are a little bit older talk about driving around in flying cars, because George Jetson lied to an entire Multiple generations thinking that we were going to grow up driving in cars. But I remember seeing the, like, computers, these, okay? I remember looking at those things with the Jetsons going, oh, yeah, that's never going to happen. And here we are, and, and there it is, right? And it, it is happening. You've got a question about something. Hey, I wonder, um, I don't know, who won the 1972 World Series? You can open up a web browser and type that question in, and Google is going to answer you. Okay, that, that's unheard of. That's amazing. All of those things are, are privileges. And you guys have heard that message before. And that's not this message. But I want to challenge you still on privilege, not the way our culture is talking about privilege here. This is not, this is not that kind of a message either. But I want to challenge you on your privilege when it comes to your position in the unfolding of God's plan for salvation. And ask you if you've ever thought about that. You and I know what the temple was designed to point to because we have the New Testament. Because we have Hebrews. You and I, we know about the cross and the empty tomb because we've got the gospels. And we've got Paul's letters that apply those things to us. We know about salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And what we need to understand is we need to stop and recognize that this is a privileged position on the unfolding of redemptive, God's plan for redemptive history in which you and I currently live. And none of us had anything to do with that. That is a gift of God. And so as you think about the good things that now have come, Hebrews 9, 11, I want you to think about the privileged position that you enjoy and respond rightly to that privileged position. Too many Ps, alliteration fails by doing this. Point number two, praise God for your privileged position. Don't take it for granted, y'all. I mean, the, the information that you have on your phones in the Bible app Do you know what some of the Old Testament saints would have done to be able to know what you know? I mean, think about it for just a minute. Think about David. David David was the man, and I'm not David. I know I heard that before. I'm not David. I get that. I'm I was the Israelites. David's David, and Jesus is kind of. Yeah, I'm not David. I'm not David, right? But think about this for a minute. Imagine how much more you know about God's plan for redemptive history than David did. Because you've got the Bible. Daniel, Rock, Shack, and Benny. The fiery furnace. And you look at the three in the fiery furnace, and you are in awe of those three in the fiery furnace. In their faith, in their boldness, bowing up to Nebuchadnezzar, going, we're not going to answer you, king. But just so that you know, so it's on record. Look, our God can save us from that fiery furnace, but he will deliver us from your hand. You sit back and you go, whoa, those guys are legit. I want to be like those guys. You have so much more of God's revelation sitting on your phone than they ever knew. Isaiah, Isaiah 53. We read that passage and we're in awe of that passage. You know about the fulfillment of that, and Isaiah never did. He does now, but he didn't when he was writing it. I mean, consider the privilege of what we know. You know about the cross. You know about Jesus taking our place and dying on the cross for our sins, something that we call substitutionary atonement, right? That he took our place and took God's full wrath poured out against our sins. Called propitiation is what that's called. We know about Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, like I was talking about a minute ago, that we can draw near with boldness and confidence because we've got a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. We've never had to bring a lamb or a bull or a goat or a bird with us to sacrifice. We've never had to have an earthly high priest take an offering from us and say, okay, I'll go take care of you with God. We've never had to do any of that. We have a privileged position And unlike the culture, which wants you to feel guilty about your privilege, I don't want you to feel guilty about this privilege. I want you to praise God for this privilege. I want you to be in awe of the fact that God caused you to be born at the time that you were born and gave you his revelation and put it in your laps and said, I'm God and here's who you are. And that's a problem, yeah, but here's Jesus and this is what I did about all that. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, through the heavens, as he passed through the heavens, as our writer has said earlier in Hebrews, he entered once for all into the holy places, into the presence of God, into the presence of Yahweh, not by means of the blood of bulls and, or goats and calves rather, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Again, as I've already mentioned, y'all, the, the Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't meant to actually satisfy God's wrath in and of themselves. They were symbolically offered in anticipation of the wrath that God would satisfy against all sin for all time on Christ, his son on the cross. And so every time they went, the bull, the goat, the calf, those weren't able to actually take the place of the, the Israelite. They're an animal, right? Right? There's a, there's a disconnect. They are not on equal footing there. Instead, they were meant to remind the people that sins demand death, the shedding of blood, and this constant remind, mindfulness reminder of the need for sacrifice, of the need for atonement. And here's the deal, y'all. We should have that constant mindfulness as well, that our sin demands atonement. Here's the difference. We have a greater sacrifice, a better sacrifice in Jesus because the blood that was offered is not the blood of bulls and of calves, but as the text says, his own blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ offered for us. Romans 3.25 says this, whom God put forward, speaking of Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation, again, it's a big fancy word that means to satisfy the full wrath of God. And Jesus was put forward to satisfy the full wrath of God against our sins. How? By what means? By his blood. Let's keep going in Romans. How about Romans 5, 9? Since therefore we have now been justified. What is it to be justified? It's a legal term which doesn't just mean not guilty. It means innocent. And you and I are justified before the Father even though we are guilty. Okay, so How am I justified? We are justified. Notice what Romans 5 9 says. The means of our justification was what? The blood of Christ. How about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7? Paul says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through what? Through his blood. What is it to redeem? It's to buy back. What was the cost of God buying us, our salvation, redeeming us? The cost was his son, the means was his blood. Again, still in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's all of us in this room, unless there's a native Jew here, right? All of us Gentiles who were once far off, you know what? Y'all have been brought near, how? By the what? By what was the means that we were brought near, we were reconciled? to God. What, what did he use? What was the means? It was the blood of Christ. One more. Colossians 1 And through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile, to draw us near to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Why did we need peace? Because we were at enmity with God. We were hostile to God because we were sinners and he is holy. And so we need a peace brought. And the way that God brought peace to you and me is through what? Through the blood of Christ. And that's Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for us. Not an animal, but a moral agent. A moral agent who is perfectly obedient to the Father's will. Perfectly obedient to the law, sinless, so that he was qualified to shed his blood for us. And now as a result, we can have confidence in what kind of a redemption again? An eternal redemption. Y'all, Jesus, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, has secured for you and I an eternal redemption through offering himself on the cross for us, for our behalf. Has that registered? Has that sunk in? Is that old news to us? Do we understand how much the Israelites would have loved to know what we know? Talked about some of the Old Testament saints. Uh, How about this? Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32. Uh, Jesus has been born. His mom and, and dad are bringing him to the temple to dedicate him. And it says this in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you were with us around Christmas time, Pastor Mike preached on that passage. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took up this baby, took up this child in his arms. And he blessed God and said, Lord, you are letting now your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." Amazing section. In fact, the next verse says that his mom and dad marveled at what Simeon says here. And yet, think of what you know compared to what Simeon knew. Do you think Simeon would have loved to know what you know? To to know the rest of the story, so to speak? I mean, he's excited because he knows that this is the Messiah. Because God has revealed that to him. I mean, he didn't, I don't think, we'll, we'll find out maybe one day. I don't think he knew about the cross. I don't think he knew about the empty tomb. I don't think he registered salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. I don't, I, imagine if, if if he knew what we know. And ladies, just so that you don't feel left out, let me go to another significant character from Luke. Verse thirty-six, same chapter, Luke chapter two, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, man, this is a faithful woman, by the way, there's an entire message wrapped up right there that she, her husband dies seven years after she marries him. And then she just is a faithful widow serving the Lord until she's 84 years old. Anyways, she did not depart from the temple, the temple that we've been talking about this whole time with all the differences there. She's hanging out in the court of the women because that's as close as she can get to the Holy of Holies. Remember she's out there right in the court of the women with the temple day after day after day after day, right? Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Like she's all in to love the Lord. In verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Why? Because she saw Jesus as a baby. You know Jesus as a full-grown man hanging on the cross and walking out of an empty tomb. How much more do you know? Do we know? The good things that have come because of our high priest who has redeemed us eternally, not just with the blood of bulls and, and, and calves and, and goats, but with his own blood. Or think about Adam and Eve. You think they wanted to know the rest of the story? Y'all, the salvation that we cling to was free, but don't let that convince you that it was cheap. It cost the father his son and the son his life. Look, our familiarity with the gospel can be a huge blessing. And if you're here tonight and you are in Christ, it is a huge blessing to you because you have heard the good news of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and you have been saved by God. Praise the Lord for that. But here's the deal, y'all. Even for those in Christ, even for Christians, the familiarity with the gospel can be a danger as well because there's that old statement that says this, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah, yeah, the gospel, it's good news and all, and that's awesome. And I know, yeah, I should be excited about it and stuff, but doesn't really move the needle for me too much anymore. You know, we need to be sure that we've never, that we never, rather, allow ourselves to grow contemptuous over the privilege of our position in Christ. Verse 13, Hebrews chapter 9, the author continues. He says, for the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and bulls, rather, In the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. What? We'll come back to that. Sanctify it for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, let's unpack this for a second. The Old Testament sacrifices, I've been telling you, they did not save, they did not atone in and of themselves. It was God's response to the faithful obedience of the Israelites. The power wasn't in the blood of the animal. The power was in God to forgive, right? But they weren't without their purpose. They did, as the text says there in verse 13 at the very end, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. If you became defiled, you had to go through a certain ceremony to become undefiled ceremonially, according to the Old Testament law. That involved sacrifices, right? If you were a if if you sinned without those high-handed intentional sins, if you sinned unintentionally, th- then you needed the, the blood of the, the, the goats and the bull on the day of atonement to atone for, to forgive your sins. You needed to be, they they did something. They were there for a purpose, for a reason. They were ceremonial with that. Okay, what about the ashes of the heifer? Because what in the world? Uh, Numbers chapter 19. I, I know that's your favorite chapter in Numbers. Um, everybody's favorite chapter in Numbers. No, but part of the, the process and the procedure for cleansing a, a person who had become defiled specifically after coming to contact with a dead body, which you think? Who does that? Well, when you're living as an itinerant people group, um, there's no morgues. Um, you kind of take care of the dead yourself. So if, if Uncle Joe's best friend Bob is living with you and he dies, Um, you got to take care of the the burial process and everything else, which means you're going to come into contact with a dead body, which means you're going to become ceremonially defiled. Well, what do I do? Well, they would take a red heifer. Red, why red? Because that's what God wanted. They would take a red heifer, they would kill this heifer, um, and then they would burn it. Yeah, the whole thing. They would just burn it to ashes, Okay. And then they would take the ashes and they would combine the ashes with water. And then when somebody came into contact with a dead body, they were sprinkled with this ashy water. And that was what would cause them to become undefiled or ceremonially clean. Don't get lost on that and say, why is that the way it was? Because that's the way God wanted it to be. The author's point is not to, to, to give an apologetic for that. The author's point is, look, if those things weren't effective in God's plan, which they were, how much more? Effective is the blood of his son. Because again, remember, these were effective, but remember the indictment already leveled against them. They're powerless to cleanse the conscience of the the sinner. They can't deal with the real problem. The real problem still needs to be an act of God regenerating, an act of God causing me to be be made born again, an act of God forgiving through responding to to faith, right? The sacrifices couldn't do that, but the, the sacrifices did have a purpose, but... Look, Day of Atonement, great. You wake up the next day. And I remember being younger and thinking about Easter this way. If you're you're put off by that and triggered by Easter, Resurrection Sunday. I remember thinking about this. I remember thinking, man, this is so great because it's a new year for me. All my sins, it's like a chalkboard. They're all gone because Easter happened. And so we get to start a new year. If you're going, man, that's really weird. I was Episcopalian when I was growing up. So just bear, just go with me for a minute. And I wasn't saved. But I I remember having that feeling like, okay, it's all washed away and I get to start over. Well, that's kind of what the Day of Atonement was for Israel. But here's the problem. When you sinned a week after the Day of Atonement, it's not like, hey, can we schedule a Day of Atonement part two for like next week? No, you had to wait another year. And you needed it another year from then. See, it was a constant need for these things. And there's this constant awareness of the fact that these sacrifices are, are, are powerless, Right? And y'all, here's the deal. That's one of the problems, one of the glaring problems with so much of the Catholic doctrine that's out there. The concept that I need to go sit in a confessional booth with a priest and confess my sins to the priest, number one, denies Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 completely. Number two, says that that priest who then gives me penance that I have to do. Say this many Hail Marys. Pray this many rosaries. What that priest is doing is he's putting something on me that Christ already bore on the cross. It's the Old Testament sacrificial system all over again in the Catholic Church. It's going back over and over and over again. And then they've built in this doctrine of purgatory, which by the way is not found Old Testament or New Testament, but only in apocryphal books, And they built in this doctrine of purgatory that says, you know what, if you die with venial sins that haven't been forgiven, you haven't had your last confession, that's why they do last rites in the Catholic churches to try to cover for all that. But if you die with sins that are are unconfessed and you haven't done penance, well then you go to purgatory to work them off. Y'all, that is a smack in the face to Jesus Christ on the cross that says, you didn't do enough. That's why we cannot just shake hands with Catholics and be like, hey, we're, we're all one big happy family. Let's all just get along together. It is anti-gospel what they're preaching and teaching in that context. It is a threat. It is a threat because it's going back here and trusting in the blood of bulls and calves that are powerless to save. Because why? Because we have a better sacrifice in Jesus. Jesus is way better at paying for my sins than I am. Jesus suffered all of God's wrath on the cross for my sins. All of them, past, present, and future. It's not like I'm going to die and God's going to be like, Ooh, oh, well, Jesus covered most of your debt, but he left some for you to pick up. There's purgatory. Yeah. It's been a while. Coming back, yelling. Yeah, coming in hot. But, y'all, it's because I want us to understand, and I want you guys to understand as well and get this final point tonight, and that's this. Rejoice in the better sacrifice that we have. Okay? Experience joy in knowing that Jesus has once for all time paid for your sins experience joy in knowing that, like those little communion cups that we pass out here, the little plastic ones, right? And and we we take communion, and then every time we take communion, no matter how long you tip it up, no matter how long you just let it sit there, because I I tried when I was younger, that final drop is not going to get out of there. It gets sucked into the crack of no return at the bottom of the cup, right? And you, you tip it back, and it's like, It's right there and then it comes out at the most inconvenient time when you're like walking out of church and you're not thinking and you put your cup down and it just dribbles out on your hand. You're like, where were you five minutes ago? But that tiny little drop there, every time I take communion, I'm reminded when I see that drop, hey, you know what? I don't have a drop of God's wrath left for me because Jesus drained the whole thing on the cross, the whole thing on the cross. Blood of bulls, calves, goats, they can't do that. Penance in the church, that can't do that praying a rosary, praying a Hail Mary, our Father, can't do that. Only Jesus can, and he has, and we have a better sacrifice in Jesus. Y'all, I love getting new tech. My wife can attest to that. She always cringes, I think, every time that Christmas comes up, because she's like, oh, oh no. In fact, she complimented me the other day. She goes, we made it through a whole Christmas, and you didn't think we needed a new TV one time. It's true. I didn't. I thought we needed other new things, (laughs) But I love new tech. I love opening. I love the box opening experience. I love powering it on. I, I'm True confession. I, I smell my Apple devices when I take them out of the box. Like, they have a smell. Some of you nerds out there with me are like, dude, I get it. I hear you. And if there was a, like a scent that I, a candle for my office that was like Apple products, I would, I would light it. I would burn it. Um, I just would. I love the new, new tech experience. But here's the thing. Even as I'm enjoying all that stuff and s- sniffing my headphones, um. There's, a, there's a, that voice in the back of my head that's like, dude, the, this is going to be old in like three months, four months, five months, six months. They're going to release something better, something different, something new. And see, that's what they do on purpose. No tech company says, we want to set out to build the last computer you will ever need. No tech company has said, we're going to set out to build the best smartphone that will ever exist. You'll never have to buy another smartphone. You know why? Because what? They would go out of business. So their whole business platform is to keep you coming back by making their product inherently defective. Guess what, y'all? Jesus is not inherently defective. God is not looking for us to keep coming back needing more sacrifices. He gave us the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He gave us Jesus and said, you will never need another sacrifice for all time because here is the best sacrifice in God. Jesus. Verse 14 describes it through the eternal spirit he offered himself. That just means Isaiah 42, 1, when God says, I have put the spirit upon him. In Luke chapter 4, 18, when Jesus quotes that and says, the spirit is upon me and I've been anointed to preach good news. In Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus is coming up out of the Jordan River and the spirit descends on him like a dove to anoint him for his earthly ministry, that's what it means there, that through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God, that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life to the Father, the Dependent on the Spirit in that process, reliant on the Spirit for that process as well, so that he could be the perfect sinless sacrifice that he willingly offers to the Father to do what? To purify our conscience from dead works, to do what the blood of bulls and calves can't do. Remember Mark chapter 7, y'all? Sure you do. But which part? This part, verses 14 through 23. He called the people to him. Jesus didn't say to them, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. He's talking about bathroom stuff there. Thus, he declared all foods clean verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. See, that's why the blood of bulls and goats can't do anything because they can't deal with the heart. But the unblemished, the sinless sacrifice that we have in Christ." 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That he took that sinfulness that is in our hearts, our depravity, he took that and put it on himself and credited us with his perfect righteousness. And now because of that, John can write, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much more the blood of Christ? How much more the blood of Christ? If you think about the things that we trust in so often maybe it's our our best efforts man I'm going to I'm going to try harder this year to be a better Christian. Good. But don't put your trust there because Jesus is better, more than your consistency. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be better at being just, I'm going to be more reliable this year. Good. But don't put your trust there because Jesus is better. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do more good for people. Awesome. But don't put your confidence in your relationship with God there because Jesus is better. I'm going to be more faithful in attending. I'm going to be, I'm not just going to show up at the church, at the bridge. I'm going to go to church on the weekends on Saturday night or Sunday mornings. Or I'm going to be more faithful in attending the bridge or or being involved in smart. Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. Do that. But don't don't put your confidence there in your relationship with God because Jesus and his sacrifice is better. I mean, I'm, I'm going to worship more passionately this year. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be more intentional to think about the songs that we're singing and all these things. Great, awesome, do that, but don't put your trust there because Jesus is a better savior. I'm gonna finish the DBR out this year. I'm gonna do the whole thing. Awesome, do it, praise God, get on it, jump in. But don't put your trust there because Jesus is a better savior than finishing the DBR. He's better than finishing partners, which by the way, if you haven't done, we would love for you to do that. It's a one-on-one discipleship program that we have here at the church. It's better than being baptized. Your faith can't be in any of these things because none of these things can deal with the heart of the issue, which is a heart issue. Only Jesus can. There's an old hymn by Isaac Watts called Not All the Blood of Beasts and it's drawn out of what we have just been studying tonight and it says this as we Close here. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus is better. Y'all, I wish I loved the good news of the gospel more than I do. And I want to love the good news that I don't have to bring bulls and goats and lambs and birds to church each week more than I do. I want to feel more gratitude for the blood of Christ than I do. So I'm praying that I will this year. I'm praying that you will this year as well. And I'm inviting you to join me in praying for me that and also praying for you guys along that as well. So let's go to the Lord right now and pray. I think we've got a closer, and then we'll be dismissed to small groups. God, that's a desire that I I would pray, I would hope that is true of, of all of us in this room, that we want to understand more and appreciate more the weight of what Christ has done for us, the sacrifice that we have received, applied to our account a sacrifice that that paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that we don't have to keep coming back over and over again and and offering these animal sacrifices because we've got the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus and that his blood has covered our sins forever, secured an eternal redemption for us. God, we don't want to be somber and overly serious so much so that we're never joyful about that. No, it's the exact opposite. We should be some of the most joyful people in the world because of that. But Lord, at the same time, when we come to sing these songs, when we come to think about these things, God, we should feel the weight of this reality, the weight of this truth. Lord, forgive us for, for being so casual that sometimes we say these things, we sing these words, we read these words, and we just don't think about the amazing truth that we are proclaiming. Truths having to do with Jesus. Truths having to do with the cross. God, I pray that you would make Jesus the end of every single measure of our lives, the end of every single ounce of our worship. May it be that we would love Jesus more. And we thank you that you've paved the way for us to be able to do that through the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.